with me in your Bibles, please, to Proverbs chapter 10, 27 through the end of the chapter. Proverbs 10, verse 27, hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. (coughs) Excuse me. The hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. The way of the Lord is strength to the upright, but destruction shall be to the workers of iniquity. The righteous shall never be removed, but the wicked shall not inhabit the earth. The mouth of the just bringeth forth wisdom, but the froward tongue shall be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaketh frowardness. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Richard Sibbs will help us to introduce the uh, afternoon sermon. Anybody remember the nickname that Richard Sibbs had among the Puritans? He was called the Sweet Dropper, right? Whatsoever is excellent in nature, either in heaven or earth, it serves to set forth the excellency of Christ. Why? To delight us that we may be willing and cheerful to think of Christ that together with the consideration of the excellency of the creature, some sweet meditation of Christ, in whom all those excellencies are knit together, might be presented to the soul. When we see the sun, oft to think of that blessed sun that quickens and enlivens all things and scatters the mists of ignorance. When we look on a tree, to think of the tree of righteousness on the way, to think of him the way of life, of him that is the true life. When we think of anything that is excellent, think of God's love in Scripture to set out Christ, that he would shadow him in all, for he is the true Son. All creatures must vanish ere long, and whatsoever is excellent in the creature, and what will stand then. Only he in whom all these excellencies are comprised in one. All the promises in him are yea and amen. If this be true then, that the promise of Christ himself, who is the chief good promised in the New Testament, amen, all of him is yea and amen, then comes this as a deducted truth. All other promises must needs be yea and amen. So, we think of associations here, right, in this quotation. We think of taking the things of this world, the things that are most excellent, setting our thoughts on them and reasoning from them to Christ. We also understand that there's another side to that. And Solomon makes that very clear here in 27 through 32. Six verses and six antithetical proverbs. The righteous, the wicked. The righteous, the wicked. The righteous, the wicked. Six times. We'll look at those things incrementally as we we move on through the chapter. But we have stopped to pause for a few moments to consider the antithesis generally in the righteous and wicked like we did the last time. And in this time too, a little farther down that road. And then also 
in the path of life and the path that leads to destruction. There are two types of persons in the world. There are two types of paths to walk in. So the last time in Proverbs we spoke of the antithesis. Uh, we, we saw that when the fall took place in Genesis chapter 3, that man became separated from God, separated from himself. He, knew, he no longer knew himself properly. Remember how Calvin's Institutes begins, that man cannot know himself until he knows God. As soon as we are estranged from God, we are estranged from ourselves. Then he was estranged from other men, right? He blamed his wife and he blamed God. And then finally he was estranged from the creature. We saw that last time. We saw this both from Christ and John Baptist when they were speaking to the Pharisees. That they both spoke of the Pharisees as a brood of vipers, sons of snakes. That they were of the seed of the serpent, that is. Hearkening all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And we saw that the Lord reveals his secrets to his friends and he denies them to his enemies. We saw that in Matthew chapter 13, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and in Psalm 25. <clears throat> and then also we saw that when the upright or the people of God mix in covenant with the wicked, whether in friendship, in family, in marriage, in ties that are not necessary that the sad effect is that too often the people of God are ill-affected by the wicked. And we said this was a scripture maxim. That we are told to remain separate from those who are evil because we will be affected by them. And I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking with you about that today. Uh, this is an important thing because the world around us grows darker and darker we said also last time, and I'll, I'll remind you here, that we said world flight is not the answer either. Paul will say to the Corinthians that you can't go out of the world. You can't flee the world. And even if you tried, you still have to look yourself in the mirror. You bring your own wickedness with you, don't you? That's true. We do. So as we've seen already, several things are forbidden by the Lord in the mingling of the two humanities. We saw this especially with regard to marriage. In Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 3, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. They took the, for them wives as they saw fit. And when they did, the whole earth was filled with violence and the thoughts of man devolved into only evil continually. <clears throat> Uh, I, we were talking, some of us, at, at, at lunch about the, uh, about the wickedness of our civil estate. Of course, it is wicked. Uh, we don't really need to argue that point. But one of the things that I want to mention is that you will find that when there is no uh, godly enforcement in a country, things tend to go astray. Our original uh, confessors the Westminster divines, the theologians. By the way, some people recoil at that word divine. It just means a student or master of divinity. A divine. A pastor, a theologian. That's all it means, really. I am not divine, but I am a divine. Right? That's, that's kind of what that means. Okay, so the Westminster divines, they said, what we need in any civil estate is we need the civil magistrate to 
identify the true church in his realm and to consult the ministry of that church in the passage of godly and wholesome law within that country so that the people within that country, whether they are members of that church or not, will at least have some guidance from the scripture to know uh, what is right and wrong truly in a nation. And beloved, since we have kicked out those moorings and never had them ensconced in our constitutional documents, we have had trouble as a nation distinguishing right from wrong. Twice in the book of Judges we read, in those days there was no king in Israel, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no standard, there was no enforcer. May we say that the standard was there, but there was no civil enforcement of that standard. And the same situation exists in our own country today. And so we are uh, in, a, in a nation that, <clears throat> that is filled with unwholesome laws. We are a part of that nation. As we heard last week, we prayed for that nation because we are a part of it. We confess sins, not our own personally, but ours covenantally in this nation. And we follow the scriptures when we do that. And we follow godly men, as we said, such as Nehemiah, Ezra, uh, Jeremiah, uh, Daniel, and others. So these are important things for us to remember. That when we talk about standards, uh, truly in our national communion as a people, known as a nation, as a country, whatever you want to call it, Uh, one political entity. If we don't have a standard of righteousness and no enforcement of that, the only thing we can expect is to devolve from bad to worse. That's the scripture record. When there is no enforcement of uprightness and godliness, it will devolve from bad to worse. So this is what we saw. We saw this last week with regard to marriage, with regard to civil estates. We talked about Jehoshaphat, I'd like to give you a little bit more detail on that so that you can have that in your uh, notes and in your minds. But overall, right, concerning marriages, concerning uh, friendships and fellowship, uh, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 9 for a moment, just across the page. Verse 6, forsake the foolish and live and go in the way of understanding. What does he say? Forsake the foolish. He's not talking about foolish stories there. He's talking about fools. Forsake the fools and live. Notice also Proverbs chapter 13 for a moment. Proverbs 13 verse 20. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise. But a companion of fools shall be... Notice it doesn't say foolish. A companion of fools shall be destroyed. Not what, perhaps not what you expected. You might have expected, he that walketh with wise men shall be wise. He that walketh with, with a foolish man shall be a fool. Nope. Shall be destroyed. That's where it ends, isn't it? So let's remember that. All right, so we saw it concerning friendship and fellowship. We saw it concerning marriage. And we saw it um, with regard to church order and discipline, although we didn't talk a lot about that. Church order and discipline is a great big topic today. 
I have a, uh, a student at Whitfield Seminary that wants to do a, a, a doctoral thesis on church order and discipline, historically considered, and then, and then as it's practiced in modernity. I think that's going to be a wonderful study. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to quote a few confessions for you. These confessions are from the 16th and 17th century regarding church discipline. Listen to the reformed church as she first came out of Rome and how important she considered church discipline. Belgic Confession. The marks by which the true church are known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if it maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in chastening of sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ be acknowledged as the only head of the church, hereby the true church may be certainly known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. The Scottish Book of Discipline, 1560 or so, says this, Ecclesiastical discipline rightly ministered as God's word prescribeth, whereby vice is repressed and virtue nourished. Wheresoever then these former notes are seen and of any time continue, be the number never so few, about two or three, there without all, all doubt is the true church of Christ, who according to his promise, he is in the midst of them. There were French refugees in England in 1551 that were fleeing the Edict of Nantes. 1551. The Glastonbury Congregation, as they were known as. And speaking of the marks of the church, the marks of the true church, they said, besides the preaching of the word and the calling upon the name of God through Christ in proper, ordered, regulated worship and, and administration of the sacraments, they added... The fourth mark we affirm to be ecclesiastical discipline, whereby morals are corrected and wickedness repressed, and all probity, justice, and equity maintained between man and man. And one more, <clears throat> I won't labor you with, you know, there are probably 13 or 15 we could use here. This is the Anglican Confession of 1553. You may be, Pastor Todd, you're going to quote an Anglican Confession? In 1553, yes. Listen to what it says. The marks, therefore, of this church are, first, the pure preaching of the gospel, then brotherly love, out of which, as members of all one body, springs goodwill of each to the other. Thirdly, upright and uncorrupted use of the Lord's sacraments according to the ordinance of the, of the gospel. <clears throat> Last of all, brotherly correction and excommunication or banishing those out of the church that will not amend their lives. This mark the Holy Fathers termed discipline. This is that same church that is grounded upon the assured rock, Jesus Christ, and upon trust in him. Beloved, while church discipline has fallen into disrepair in our age, let it be known from this pulpit that it was not always so. That discipline was considered to be a necessary mark of the church. 
a necessary mark. And why, why would we say it's necessary? Can't you have a church without discipline? And the answer is no. You cannot. You must separate in the church what you would not separate in the world. And here's what we mean by that. If we turn to uh, the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we will hear the warning of the Lord Jesus Christ going something like this. Repent, or else I will come and remove your candlestick. What does that mean? Well, that means you're going to keep on meeting. You'll still have your worship service times. You'll still have your building to meet in. But I won't be there anymore. That's what it means. Without repentance and proper church discipline... And by proper church discipline, I don't mean, you know, we jerk one another around all the time with accusations. I mean that we proceed by the scriptures according to what we learn from Christ himself in the Bible as to what proper discipline looks like. And we enact that. And that to fail to do that is to risk losing our candlestick. There is a right separation between the righteous and the wicked. And if not here, beloved, where would that ever take place? We have natural bounds to people, don't we? Natural bounds in family. Natural bounds in government. Natural bounds even in our working with others outside in in our commercial enterprises. Those are natural bounds. And we cannot go out of the world in that sense like the apostle will talk about. And we'll look at that in a moment. But here... That's a different thing. Here is the place where the people of God are called saints. What does saint mean? It comes from the Greek word hagios, which means holy. The Lord Jesus Christ is holy. Therefore, those who are in covenant with him are at least to have a profession of holiness. And wickedness must be rooted out of the church. Now we'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for a moment. Verse 1, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you, from among you. For I verily as absent in the body, but as present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one, Unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of Christ, of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good, know ye not, that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, 
or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For then you must needs go out of the world. But now have I written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. That's the chapter. Uh, We can be brief here because we've talked about these things before. So, what are those three reasons that we look at for church discipline here? The first is, it's for the honor of Christ. He will say at the outset of this chapter, not even Gentiles do that. They know it's wrong. When you do this and bring it into the church, then you bring dishonor to Christ. We must preserve the purity, the testimony of our understanding of Christ to the watching world. We cannot make Christ a minister of sin, in other words. So we must separate the conception or testimony of the church with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ from all evil. Secondly, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's the second reason. What does he say? If you allow this to go on in the church, it will infect other members of the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so for the purity of the body's sake, which is Christ's body, and you'll notice how he puts that together. He will say, ye are unleavened. Well, sadly, they weren't unleavened. They had a fornicator in their midst. But, he said, but in saying to them, ye are unleavened, what he means to say is that the church of Jesus Christ in her testimony must be unleavened. She must testify to the holiness and to the purity of her king and of her head. And then thirdly, he will say, purge out the old leaven. And that's that man that has been committing fornication. Notice that they had become tolerant instead. They were puffed up and tolerant of evil. They they said, oh, no, 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 we don't need to discipline him. We're going to be nice to him. And we're going to bring him around with kindness. Paul says that's a bad formula. It's not the formula of Christ. And so Christ becomes very threatening himself, speaking through the Apostle John to those seven churches and says, repent or else I will come and remove my candlestick. And so then, if that man has any hope, they won't bring him around with kindness. They will actually bring him around with discipline, if there's any hope for him. Uh, One of the things, I have a pastor friend that lives halfway across the country. One of the things that, that he asks often is, well, did you love that person enough to discipline them? That's a good question, isn't it? Normally, here's the pattern, beloved. Someone comes in to a church, even a Presbyterian church, and not just in their local church, but in their Presbyterian, sometimes in their denomination, makes an absolute mess. No one loves them enough to discipline them. And so what happens is the church becomes tolerant of their error, hoping that they will stop making a mess. And then finally, after they get everything they want and they've made an absolute mess, they leave under their own power without discipline. We have not loved them at that point, and we have leavened the whole lump. See, that's exactly the wrong situation. 
No, there is a separation that must take place between the righteous and the wicked. And in all places of the world, this is the place where that separation becomes most acute. So those professed um, sinners that are scandalously sinning, you'll remember uh, in the days of Moses and Phinehas, that scandalous man comes in with his Midianite wife and right in front of everyone who's weeping for the judgments that God has brought on them for their sins, brazenly goes forth with his sin. And Phinehas is remembered throughout every generation as the man who stood against that. And he's commended by God for doing so. Purge out, Paul says, the old leaven. And then he will say, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And by flesh there, I take that to mean that this man is ruled by his carnal desire, that that flesh would be destroyed and that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The day of the Lord Jesus there is the day of Christ's power when he comes upon him with saving faith, with an effectual call. And he will hear the word and be saved. So the church particularly then, uh, this questioning that we have of discipline as either the third or the fourth mark of the church, we ought not to be questioning that. We ought to receive that as our fathers have bequeathed that to us as a necessary mark of the church for the separation of the house and kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ from every appearance of evil. Discipline is for the unrepentant. Discipline is for the recalcitrant. Discipline is for the person that sins over and over again. And even if he comes to the session, uh, we had uh, one of our churches that had a man that was involved in, a, in what we would call a, a very serious sin. And they rebuked him and he was sorry and he wept and he went out and a month later did the same thing again. And he came in and, and confessed and they rebuked him and he wept and went out and a month later did the same thing again. And this went on for about a year. And finally the church called me up and said, what should we do? I said, well, you should love him enough to discipline him. You've been patient beyond reason. It's now time to bring the hammer down. Oh, well, we don't want to put him out of the church. That means he's not a Christian. What do you think that sin makes him? Let's remember the scripture. So, it is a hard thing to do. We don't discipline because it's difficult. We don't separate because it's it's difficult. Sometimes it's more convenient just to be associated with evildoers because we get goods and services faster or whatever that is. Sometimes it's simply more convenient. But beloved... Let us maintain our testimony to purity. So what about other venues then? We've talked about family. We've talked about church. What about other venues? What about our, for ourselves and our children? How is it that we must proceed to obey the Lord in these cases? What kind of venues, friendships, common causes, exposure to unbelief ought we to permit? And what ought we to forbid to ourselves and those under our authority and responsibility? These questions are not as clear cut. And we believe that the scriptures are a sure guide. That we do have good wisdom that we can apply even to our own incremental cases. So let's think on some of these for a few moments. 
The first thing that I want to mention to you here is that, that Pastor Riddell is not advocating a boycott of every particularly evil thing that you find out. I'm not a boycotter. I've never been. Sometimes I'll, I'll have a, uh, a, uh, a company that I myself, I'll say, no, I'm not going to do business with that. But I don't believe that I have the authority to tell you that. That's up to you, beloved. That, that's something that God will, will press upon your heart, your conscience. I can't point to a verse in scripture and say, separate yourself from this company. And so I won't. I won't do that. Um, but I will give you some guidance from the scripture. There are some things that I think we need to say. The first bit of guidance we've already read here, right? What does he say? I wrote unto you, verse 9 in 1 Corinthians 5, in an epistle, not to company with fornicators. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one no, not to eat. And the eating there means that we do not come to the supper with him. He's supposed to be put out. He's supposed to be excommunicated, and so we don't eat with him. Some divines will say that this means you don't have friendly fellowship with him. Well, that may be true, but you certainly don't sit down to the table of the Lord with him either. You can decide on your friendly fellowship whether you will have him over to encourage him to repent or not. That's up to you. But we don't confess that everything's okay when it's not. That's to live a lie. So that's the first thing that Paul will say. It's not possible for you in all of your connections to do away with fornicators, unclean, covetous, idolaters, and so on. If I was requiring that of you, Paul says, then you'd have to leave this world. This world is populated with those kinds of folks. Sometimes we will do business with some folks that are like that. It may not be avoidable for us. Um, It's like eating meat sacrificed to idols. Go and sit down, eat, nothing doubting, Paul says. Don't ask where it came from, just eat it. Right? Don't ask, um, uh, did did you get that from Amazon? Or whatever beast you want to bring up, you know. Oh, well, I don't want any part of that. Okay, then don't have part of it. Find another way. But, but also, let's not draw each other into the same conscientious position of ourselves, right? Okay, so um, there's a, there are a, a few things in Scripture that can help us uh, with this. So last week we mentioned Jehoshaphat. You'll remember that. Uh, we're in Second Chronicles 18, if you want to turn there. The next few chapters are rip-roaring uh, adventure stuff uh, in Second Chronicles. Some of it's a little bit maybe, uh, oh, I don't know. There's not a part of the scripture that's ho-hum for me. I, every, every piece of it is, is fascinating to me. But So in, in chapter 18, Jehoshaphat, good king, right? Godly man, uh, really concerned about serving the Lord. In fact, let's, let's say this. 
that in regard to Jehoshaphat's association with Ahab, we don't think that Jehoshaphat was in danger of taking on any of Ahab's sins. I mean, Jehoshaphat comes to Ahab and he says, I, my people are as thy people, you know, let's go up. Yeah, you're going up to Ramoth Gilead. We'll go up with you. It's okay. Right? We used to be one nation. You know, let's get back together again. Let's have that ecumenicity that we all need. And so here he goes up to, up to uh, Samaria and he's sitting with Ahab and, and Ahab's wondering whether or not he should go up to Ramoth Gilead and there's 400 of the prophets of Baal there. And they're all saying to Ahab, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper. All those wicked heathens, they're going to fall at your feet, Ahab. Don't worry about it. Head on up there. Go conquer. Jehoshaphat looks around and he says, is there not a prophet of Jehovah here? Can't we find a prophet of the true God? And Ahab says, yeah, there's one guy. His name is Micaiah. I hate him. He never tells me anything good. Always tells me what I don't want to hear. And Jehoshaphat says, oh, don't let the king say so. Listen to the voice of the Lord, in other words. He's earnest for Ahab's sake. And so Ahab calls in Micaiah and the chamberlain says to him, now all of Ahab's prophets have told him it's a good thing to do. So you say the same. Micaiah says, ah, I'll only say what the Lord says. And so he walks in and, and I think there's a little sarcasm in the text here. He walks in and Ahab says, so Micaiah, tell me, shall we go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper? I think he said it something like this. Oh yes, King Ahab, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper. Right? And so Ahab turns immediately to Jehoshaphat and says, See, he never tells me what I want to hear. Ahab got the message. Right? That he wasn't going to mimic the false prophets. So then what happens? Well, uh, he sees the vision, right? Micaiah reveals the vision that it's a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets. So, okay, Micaiah is put in ward and his last words are very, very important, I think, or else we wouldn't mention them. Ahab says, put this man in ward and feed him the bread of affliction until I return. And Micaiah says, if you return at all, the Lord hasn't spoken by me. Listen up, everyone. All right, so up they go to Ramoth Gilead, right? Jehoshaphat is with him. In fact, Jehoshaphat is naive enough to follow Ahab's advice. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Um, since I've heard that I'm going to fall at Ramoth Gilead by that silly prophet Micaiah, why don't you put on king's robes and I won't? Jehoshaphat says, okay. So he puts on the king's robe. Out he goes into the enemy. And here they come. It's Ahab. Let's chase after him. They catch up with him and he says, ah, ah, I'm not Ahab. I'm Jehoshaphat. Oh, and they leave him. Because their commander had said, you fight only with the king of Israel. And so they're looking all over for Ahab. They can't find him because he's not dressed in his royal robes. And so a guy draws a bow at a venture and it hits Ahab between the chinks of his armor and he bleeds out and dies. You can't escape the judgment of God, beloved. So Jehoshaphat goes home. And this is where we pick it up in verse 19. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Notice that there is nothing in Jehoshaphat that has slipped. 
What he is indicted for by the prophet is his association with Ahab. What is the judgment that comes upon him? Well, we're going to see that in the balance of chapter 19, Jehoshaphat tends to lead a pretty good kingdom. He establishes the proper ecclesiastical and civil courts at the end of this chapter. He, he goes up into the northern kingdom and evangelizes, invites people to come south to Jerusalem where the true worship of God is and to leave Baal worshiping Ahab-ridden northern kingdom Israel. Come south with me, he says. He does all of those things. Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem. He went out again through the people from Beersheba to Mount Ephraim and brought them back unto the Lord God of their fathers. He was not confused except in that loyalty that he had toward Ahab, in that affinity that he made with him. However, as we said two weeks ago, so we say this week, the judgment that was visited upon Jehoshaphat was visited Upon his progeny. Upon his children. He had a son. And his son's name was Jehoram. And we find that in chapter 21. Now Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers. And was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram his son reigned in his stead. And he had brethren. The sons of Jehoshaphat. Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah and Michael. And Shephatiah, all these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. And their father gave them great gifts of silver and of gold and of precious things with fenced cities in Judah. But the kingdom gave he to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Now when Jehoram was risen up to the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and slew all his brethren with the sword and diverse also of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 30 and 2 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 8 years in Jerusalem and he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel like as did the house of Ahab for he had the daughter of Ahab to wife. What was her name? Oh yeah, Athaliah. The daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. What happened with Jehoshaphat's affinity to Ahab, to Jehoshaphat. Nothing really. He remained faithful for all that we can tell in the narrative. But what happened with his son? He married an idol worshiper, the daughter of Ahab. And then when he died, well, the story just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? So then Ahaziah, his son, becomes king in his stead. But in verse 10 of chapter 22, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, slain in battle, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal in the house of Judah. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons that were slain, and put him and his nurse in a bedchamber. So Jehoshabiath, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she slew him not. And he was with them hid in the house of God six years, and Athaliah reigned over the land. 
And so, one of these things that we must remember in the separation from the righteous and the wicked is we may be able to handle things that others within our purview cannot. We might be drawing someone else into a situation that they simply cannot handle. And we need especially to think about our children or those under our authority. As elders of the church, what we expose you to. One of our uh, sister churches had, had, had presented a teaching to their uh, congregation. And as a presbytery, we chided them, not because we thought that there was... Uh, Uh, something that was uh, sinister that was going on there, but because what they did was, in proof of this teaching, they sent the people of God to a particular website that was fraught with error. Now, as ministers of the gospel, as theologians in our own right, we, we might be able to read things from errorists and remain unscathed by them, but we cannot expect that from everyone else. We should not expect it. Oh, I expect that you as a congregation, you're going to have a lot of inoculation. However, it is still unwise of me to send you to a website. Let's say that there's something that one of these modern federal visionists say that is pretty astute. You know what Pastor Todd would never do? Send you there to read him. Because there's just too many other errors there. And I I want to keep you safe from those. In other words, my own associations may be that, but I would never draw you into those same associations. You see what Jehoshaphat did. He drew his son Jehoram into that association with the house of Ahab such that he married Athaliah. That is utter wickedness, isn't it? And so there was this difficulty that came up. There are other alliances with unbelievers that... That may be okay. We know that Abraham, when he was yet called Abram, allied himself with with several in in a common defense pact. So that when they gathered together to go rescue Lot and to and to and to bring home those that that had been carried off by the by the ten kings, that they were confederate one with another. This was a mutual pact of defense or Commerce. This is, I think, what Paul is speaking about. You must needs go out of the world if you're going to avoid every association like that. But it is done at high levels with people. We want to avoid, even if we must make national pacts with other nations for, for mutual defense, that if that is an unbelieving nation, that we don't go to war with them, we don't join hands with them in a particular kind of uh, conflict like that where we're going to have our people next to their people where we will be exposed as a people to error. And that might weaken our resolve to follow Christ and him alone. But in Genesis 14, 13 through 26, 1 Kings 5, 12, Jeremiah 29, 7, uh, other places of scripture, we see the godly joining in mutual packs of defense and commerce. I mean, Solomon joined with Hiram, didn't he? And who was Hiram? Hiram had a, had a Danite mother and a heathen father. And what did Hiram do? He provided the cedars of Lebanon and gold and silver and artificers for Solomon's building the house of God. And there's nothing wrong with that. But notice what they didn't do, that they didn't take those workers that came from Hiram and mingle the people of Israel with them. They kept them separate when they came. 
You see, these are the kinds of precautions that the godly have taken, even in necessary contact with unbelievers. And that's an important thing to remember. Okay, but we move on to Solomon, and Solomon took that too far, didn't he? There was a time at which he knew how to keep himself pure, but then there was another time where he absolutely failed in that. And so as a part of his diplomatic mission as a king, married foreign wives and ended up burning incense and building altars to them. And we are told specifically in scripture in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8, that he burned incense to Ashtaroth and set up an altar to Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, because he married a Moabite princess. So, beloved, we want to make sure that, that if, <clears throat> if a man as wise and godly in the early part of his career as Solomon can fall in such things, that we avoid those same kinds of relations that might indeed make us fall as well. Well, we're just about to the end here. <clears throat> I have one more thing that I want to mention to you. I think you'll profit from it. I, I, I wouldn't keep you if I didn't think it was very important. And, and no, I don't think it'll hold till next week. So let's turn to Hosea chapter 7. Hosea chapter 7, verse 8. Ephraim hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. And the pride of Israel testifieth to his face, and they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is a silly dove, is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of heaven. Of the heaven, I will chastise them as their congregation hath heard. Woe unto them, for they have fled from me. Destruction unto them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. And they have not cried unto me with their heart. When they howled upon their beds, they assemble themselves for corn and wine, and they rebel against me. Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Well, you know where we're going with this. It's said in the very beginning of that reading. First of all, it says that Ephraim hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Children, you like pancakes? Of course you do. Everybody likes pancakes. So you put the pancake on the griddle, you know, you're, or on the, uh, in, in the frying pan, and you know, you, you watch your mama pour that out, and it spreads out like that, and and, you know, you, you, you can start to see the edges start to turn up a little bit. And you get the bubbles that, that, that come up, you know. And, and so what if your mother at that point just took it off the griddle and put it on your plate with the bubbles and the, and the one raw side? What would you say? You'd say, ew. No, no, no mom, aren't you supposed to turn that over? Right? right? The bubbles, that... 
doesn't mean it's done. That means it's time to turn it over. Right? That's right. Ephraim is a cake not turned. What is a cake not turned? It's not desirable. It's not desirable. Why is it not desirable? Notice what the Lord says about him. He hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength. What are the next few words? And he knoweth it not. Or he knew it not. You see what happens with associations? Beloved, I can tell you that as a pastor I've seen this over and over again. Now we don't trust my experience. We listen to what the Lord says here in his word. Our experience validates what God says here. Some of us remember back to 2006 when this church was first established. And we came out of another church. And there were those that left and went other places, not here. And that we believed that what we were doing here was continuing the church that that had begun. Right? And and we kept the same standards and we kept the same practices and, and so on. And there were others. What did they do? They, they started because they were wearied at the disruption and the difficulties. They went to other churches instead. And those other churches didn't maintain those same commitments. And in a, what seemed to me to be a very short amount of time, neither did the folks that used to be with us. All kinds of things came on the table for discussion that were off limits for us. Because they had been recognized as not what the Lord required. Sometimes, beloved, what is being taught here in Hosea 7 is that when we mingle ourselves, um, it may be convenient. It may even be expedient for certain ends. But when we are changed by our association with the wicked, very often we will not see it. It's a subtle change that will take place in our thoughts and attitudes of mind and we will not see it. Or we will exercise our wills and refuse to see it. And by the time it is brought to our notice, we will with the writer, with Solomon in Proverbs, we will say, I was almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation. We won't see it until it's so big and so large that it requires Something great to overcome. Ephraim is a, ta- is a cake not turned. Strangers have stolen his strength and he doesn't see it. He's got gray hairs all over him and he doesn't notice it. Why? Because they come up little by little by little. And very often these associations that we inculcate, we think for necessary reasons. Well, if we're not careful, they can influence us. Or our loved ones, as we saw with Jehoram, and we won't see it. What's the remedy then? Well, we must exercise a greater caution up front. And we must call upon the name of the Lord and and ask for wisdom to know how to navigate this world, which is filled with evil, that we may live in but not of this world. And that we may be a constant light and witness to it. Well, I'm past time and out of time, and 
There's a lot more that could be said, but there's a lot of fodder there for meditation, beloved. If you'd take it up, read back through those scriptures and, and take that up. Lord, bless us with a proper and biblical separation from the wicked. Let's stand and call upon the name of the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee, certainly we, we confess our own inadequacy to know how to conduct ourselves in such a minefield of difficulty. O oh Lord, that Thou hast told us in Scripture that we, that we cannot go out of the world, that we must deal in some sense with evil. Lord, we, we call upon Thy name with great fear that with the prophet Hosea, we confess that sometimes we are changed and we don't know it until very late. Oh Lord, be merciful to us, we pray. And show us our errors early and from afar before they become those great mountains. Deliver us also with regard to those with whom we are in covenant and especially over those that we are responsible And Lord, teach us to keep them safe as well. Oh Lord, we ask that we would not be like that silly dove that flits here and there because it's merely pleasant or convenient. But that we would be wise in our associations. Help us to remember what the Apostle Paul has taught us, that evil communications corrupt good manners. That we might indeed remain as far as it lies within us, free from contact and influence of evil. We thank Thee, Lord, for separating the two humanities at the fall. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not bring together what Thou hast put asunder. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.